The opinions and views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and not necessarily those of Midwest Family Springfield, its management, or its advertisers. This is the noblest motive. This is the noblest motive. Chris, I what is it? What is it again? Eisenhart. Eisenhart. Very powerful last name. Oh, thank you. Um, the German administrators looked at, looked nicely on him <laughs> yeah. that day. Eisenhart. They did. My family must have done something good for them. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're talking obviously about education, and we had the chance to talk to a PhD student in um, educational policy. Yes. And so we started talking about her origins and stuff. And um, I think that's kind of an important place to start. <laughs> Tell me about Mr. Donahue. Mm, Mr. Donahue. So Mr. Donahue was my ninth grade uh, English teacher. Uh, and he was the, the head of the English department. And it was actually his last year as a teacher. He was only teaching one class. And uh, my, my class happens to be that one. And I think it was partially because he was such a smart guy. Uh, and also because he was on his way out, kind of like, you know what, I'm just going to do whatever I want with these kids. But he was, <laughs> he was just uh, the most like transformative teacher I'd ever had. Um, just the way that he like approached the, he was an English teacher, so the literature that we looked at um, was just very different from how I had learned earlier uh, in earlier English classes. You know, he really like connected it to... Um, like lessons about society and just made it relevant to us and just like, you know, um, in a way that was very profound uh, that went beyond, you know, just the kind of rote comprehension that I had gotten used to in earlier English classes. Um, and he, um, you know, also like inspired me in the sense that he had earlier uh, switched careers. He, he began actually as a, uh, a nuclear physicist. Right? <laughs> oh my God! On, I actually yeah, didn't know that. Yeah, who worked on who worked on um, nuclear engine uh, uh, submarines for for the Navy. So Whoa! I, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, this guy was brilliant beyond you know anything I had ever been exposed to, and the fact that he you know wanted to teach and he you know before teaching in the district where you know Trent and I grew up for a lot of our lives. Um, he had uh, taught in a lot of like underprivileged and rural uh, districts in um, in, the, in the southern part of the country. And I just found like his whole story and the way he approached the content to be very different and very inspiring. And so he was definitely uh, a big influence on me in terms of getting into uh, education myself. With Mr. Donahue, you were saying to yourself, I think that might be what I want to do. Definitely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had always uh, had an interest in um, history, a little bit in English too. Uh, but then, you know, finally when I had a really transformative teacher, I thought to myself, okay, maybe there's, you know, an avenue for me to apply my love of history, uh, and, 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 you know, like what I do. Uh, so yeah, that was definitely the first moment it entered my mind as a career option. What'd you go to college for Chris? So for my undergrad, I went to uh, Marist college in uh, New York. It's in Poughkeepsie. It's like a small city, um, <clears throat> in upstate New York. So I went there for social studies education with a concentration in history got that in four years. And then uh, following that, I went to Queens College, it's like a CUNY school, City University of New York, uh, for a degree in literacy. Gotcha. That's been my educational track. And so you graduated and what was your first gig? So right out of college, I was doing substitution, you know, uh, wherever I could find it, trying to work my way in the door into a district. Uh, then after about a year of that, you know, uh, working part-time at a non-teaching job, 
I um, was able to land a gig in um, a school district out in like uh, uh, Long Island where it was like a credit recovery program, uh, basically for students who you know hadn't accumulated the proper amount of credits uh, to graduate on a normal track. So they had to come to basically like a, a version of night school uh, to make up credits. So that was a very, you know, um, a trial by fire, a baptism by fire, I guess <laughs> you would say, yeah. uh, you know, really dealing with very unmotivated students or students who had, you know, been kind of, you know, slipped through the cracks of the educational system as uh, so often happens. Um, so there was that. Um, then followed by uh, my first full-time job uh, was in the borough of the Bronx in New York City. BX. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And that was a, um, in a charter school, uh, part of a network of schools across the five boroughs. Uh, spent two years there. Uh, had quite the experience and learned, you know, quite a bit, uh, but saw a lot of things too. Uh, followed by um, a, a, another school in the Bronx uh, that happened to be a public school. Gotcha. There was my transition to the public side. Uh, and then finally, I was there for one year, and then I ended up at my current school, uh, which is Bro- um, in Brooklyn. Uh, it's called Midwood High School. It's a large uh, public high school um in, in the borough of Brooklyn. I've been there for now about six years. Well, thank you for teaching and doing all of the good work. Um, (laughs) going to the first thing that you did when we spoke to our friend Janelle, that was the first time she kind of said that she experienced kind of like a deer in headlights moment because the first job she had was with sixth graders and Mm. like she, she loved it. And it like fulfilled her and then she got to this and it was kind of like, whoa, this is um, a little bit more intense. Did that make you hungrier, that experience, or was it something that made you a little bit more cautious or how did that affect you going into your first full-time job? I think the, the, the first gig kind of made me, uh, yeah, it made me hungrier. Um, you know, like my, my very first teaching job was, I was not you know, seen as part of the culture of the school, really. Um, I was just kind of the guy who showed up when the day was over to, you know, teach these, uh, these other kids, you know, um, right. when you, you know, are a presence in a building and you have a classroom, you build a culture and a reputation, you know, uh, in a building among the staff and the students, you feel like you have more, more control over what you do, you know? Um, and so, not having that in my very first gig, uh, yeah, made me hungrier to want to get that, you know, and it certainly, you know, despite the challenges of my first full-time job, um, I definitely preferred it to, to my, uh, my very first foray into teaching. Well, so that's the, your first job is where you kind of said you saw a lot and kind of giggled a little bit, kind of crazy that job. Yeah. Uh, again, just in the sense that, you know, uh, at, you know, as a teacher, when you, when you have a, um, a full, uh, roster and a full spectrum of students, right? You deal with, you know, kids on every single level. You deal with the overachievers. Uh, you deal with the kids who are in the middle of the road. And then you maybe have one or two kids who are really, really, you know, kind of falling uh, by the wayside. And I guess, you know, having that spectrum uh, makes it easier to, you know, convince yourself that you're having an impact, right? right. When your only interaction with students is of, um, you know, kids who, despite what you do, uh, their situation looks kind of bleak. Uh, it, it can get you down a little bit, yeah. you know, uh, w- without those positive interactions and positive experiences to offset them. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, that that was the main part about the very first job. Gosh, so much responsibility. It, like, gives me anxiety to think about almost. But, like, with, <laughs> with that spectrum, 
and your resources that you had, mm-hmm. how did you balance everybody? I mean, did you give more attention to the students who were falling behind? Could you do that? Or what was the game? That is, um, you know, I, in an ideal situation, uh, you're trying to do that, right? You're trying to, right. you know, as best you can prop up the kids who need the most support. Uh, but, you know, one of the challenges that teachers face is that, that, as you said, you know, that spectrum of ability that you encounter in a classroom is so uh, varied, um, where there's such a, a gap between the highest achiever and the lowest achiever in your class that it's difficult uh, or takes a, a tremendous amount of time and effort to, you know, uh, craft instruction that reaches both of those students simultaneously, mm-hmm. you know, that um, deconstructs the concepts in such a way that the uh, the um, underachieving student can understand them, you know, and then uh, is sophisticated enough that the right. um, above grade level student can act, you know, uh, be, be engaged and interested right. and, and all of that. You know, so the majority of the time, um, I think what most teachers do in their early years is just sort of teach toward the middle, you know, uh, to try and teach the uh, or reach rather the, the, the highest number of students um, you know, albeit sometimes that coming out of the expense of uh, not exactly, uh, you know, meeting the educational needs of the lowest achieving students and the highest achieving students. Right. Um, as you move on, you can, I think, work in more and more opportunities and more ways to do that as you become more, uh, you know, seasoned in your practice. But it's it's always a challenge. And uh, I think one of the more difficult things that teachers deal with. Right. I mean, I think that something that you just kind of lit in my mind is the idea that in an ideal world, Rocky, we would see the children that need more help and we would be like, all right, those overachievers don't need as much attention, but they need just as much attention. You actually can't pull attention from those people because the overachievers, they'll lose focus too. Yeah. Because they're not being challenged. They're bored. Right. Everybody needs attention, but it's like, how do you manage that when you're just one individual and you're actually teaching like various different strata of it, of mine. I'd imagine in different parts of the country, they do a better job of categorizing the students than others where they kind of lump them together. Is that true or is that a weird thing to say? No, it's definitely true. And I think that's, um, that's like one of the core debates in education that has been for a long time is, you know, what are the benefits and problems that are associated with something called tracking, which is what you're talking about, right? Placing students into a uh, a specific, um, you know, track uh, toward graduation that's more tailored to their abilities and their, their what they're able to do. Um, you know, people who support the idea of tracking uh, would, you know, point, we kind of just discussed um, that if you sort students more meaningfully into um, a track that's aligned with their academic ability, teachers will be better able to, you know, tailor instruction that, that reaches them, you know, um, thing, something that goes sl- at a slower pace or deconstructs concepts more for the lower achieving students or, you know, something that moves at a faster pace or goes more in depth with the higher achieving students. That's what, you know, a supporter of uh, tracking and education would mm-hmm. say. Um, the detractors would point toward more of the um, the social implications right. uh, that, that some people have, have talked about with tracking. You know, that if you, uh, that, that tracking has in the past, you know, often been drawn along uh, racial or socioeconomic lines, right? right? Um, there, there's a trend in education where the most uh, classified members of the special education population happen to be black males, right? And, you know, so a detractor of tracking would say, you're just kind of entrenching these differences and uh, making sure that, you know, members of more privileged classes are getting access to 
you know, academic research while you're, you know, maybe creating a, um, you know, uh, a different type of uh, outcome for, for students who are, uh, you know, habitually sorted into the lower track. The things that we need to do and like that can be useful, things like tracking kind of get screwed up because we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot in terms of dividing ourselves and everything like that. Right. The stratification of stratification. That's the word. We've been talking about that a lot the last few days between the both of us. It feels like, but you know, it feels maybe that the stratification of the society certainly has deep and radical um, implications in the classroom Mm -hmm. or anywhere else, because it's always comes down to, are we actually choosing people based on the criteria that we're setting out or is it just a red herring? Right. Are there actually real, quote unquote, real reasons why we're doing things? And so it's worth, right. you know. Are you, How do you feel about something like tracking, Chris? Is that something you're kind of in the middle about or is it good to a point? I think it's, it's one of those examples of um, what we see a lot in education where there's a well-intended policy that has kind of um, unintended and negative outcomes. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, I do agree that. Tracking could have the potential of, if applied incorrectly, it could have the potential to become, you know, this reinforcer of, um, you know, class barriers, right? Like keeping the lower class kids in the lower class and, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, and helping teachers out ultimately. Right. Um, but, but I do also think that if done correctly, as it is done in other places, it could create a more meaningful and productive educational experience. A lot of research shows that one of the reasons that you have disengagement with students uh, in school is because, you know, for certain kids, there's just no opportunity for them to feel the feeling of success. You know, they go to this class and they're failing that class. They go to the next class, they're failing that class. They go to the third class, they're failing that class. You are not going to develop a uh, a trust in institutions or a love for learning in that way. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you put that kid in a track that was more you know, tailored to their interests and abilities, they might, you know, develop a different outlook on institutions. They might develop a, a lifelong love for learning or develop skills that could turn into a, a good career, you know? Right. Um, but instead, we kind of die on this idealized, romanticized sort of idea in American education of like, well, anyone can achieve anything, which is nice in, in you know, fantasy land. But if you look <laughs> at the reality of, of, of the world, yeah. you know, it's, it's almost like we're, it's a well-intended but misguided uh, policy. One thing in terms of parenting, and I'm not a parent, I think it's unfair when parents are like, you'll be able to do whatever you want. And it's like, it's well-intended, but it seems yeah. to me unrealistic. And there are ways that you can <laughs> mm-hmm. encourage kids without guaranteeing them success <laughs> in whatever they do. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's that's the thing is that we have to, you know, like part of that shift is going to come in like a change in the way we uh, value certain jobs or, you know, what, right. what, what our definitions of cultural or economic or material success are, you know, um, it, it looks different for everyone. And that doesn't mean that anyone is uh, better or worse off, you know, but yeah, I, I think that's really it. it. It's one of those things too, where I think dislike of tracking kind of stems from a larger trend in education where uh, administrators and people in positions of power tend to, you know, only uh, treat the symptoms rather than the root causes, you know, mm-hmm. hey. um, and, and, and putting track, you know, saying, well, tracking is bad and it creates stratification is a very convenient way to say, well, you know, we promoted this many members of 
uh, this disadvantaged population into advanced courses, right? But are those kids passing those courses? Are the kids learning anything in those classes? Right, uh, right. Or is it just so you can say, well, I did this? And that's really what it kind of is. Let me ask you a question, Chris. Yeah. Do you think that that the tracks, as we call them, as they're currently functioning or perhaps situated, do you think that they function in more of a of a cast setting than as like a free moving like fiat system? And by that, I mean, if if an individual is doing poorly, let's say, right, and they get put into the tract of individuals who are struggling at a certain topic. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then through being in that track, they end up learning a great deal, right? And it all clicks, right? Is there that sort of mobility? Can you like start out on the low track and all of a sudden it's like, oh man, by 12th grade, like Johnny was really yeah. killing it. Advanced. Like he was the math man of the world. <laughs> Just need to be on that low track for a year or two, right? Like, because I feel right. as though if they are like these immobile monoliths that we put children into, then I can understand why people would say that it might entrench things. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, if you just get, okay, like, you know, Kevin's not smart enough to be in in the most advanced class. Can he become with the work that mom and dad say that he can do, right? Rocky just said, right? You can do anything. With that work, can he do anything? Well, I think as it's it's presently constituted, um, Yes, right. A student who receives some supports or, um, you know, uh, accommodations, uh, you know, in special education or something else, if they demonstrate that they're, you know, functioning at a a great level with with those supports, they can be taken away, you know, and uh, therefore, you know, they're given a little less of a restrictive environment and, and, and I guess therefore like placed on quote unquote a higher track. Uh, But since like in, in large urban school districts like New York's, we don't see that. Um, there's not exactly the system that you're describing. Okay. Uh, although I do, I do, I, I agree. I think some people would, um, you know, have more support for the idea if that was the case. Um, you know, I really think we don't really see that much, I guess, uh, like you said, mobility between uh, more advanced or, or less advanced tracks. And I think part of the reason um, for that is, you know, so far we've only discussed high school education. Um, and unfortunately, I think a lot, a big part of the issue um, is that, by the time students enter high school, uh, it's almost as if the educational die is already cast, right? So a student who, you know, grew up in a, um, a household where they had, you know, a text-rich environment where, uh, you know, they were able to sort of learn to read and, and recognize, you know, uh, gain phonetic awareness and, you know, just, just uh, get that head start, you know, um, versus a kid who didn't have that head start it's glaringly obvious what kind of educational beginning a kid had by the time they end in ninth grade. You know, and a lot of our uh, policies, our initiatives, and uh, other educational things are kind of applied at high school because it's deemed, you know, to be the most important year. It's right before college. It's when the kids are really learning about the advanced stuff. But most educational professionals will tell you that, nope, you know, in reality, it's the formative year, the uh, the early childhood education, where we see the greatest disparities and where, you know, ultimately the die is cast and it's difficult to reverse the trend once high school rolls around. That makes so much sense. The, the track yeah. actually needs to begin in like second grade. Exactly. And so we might see a greater degree of, as you called it, like that mobility between these tracks 
if, you know, kids started out on a more level playing field. So the first time that a kid is tracked is going into high school. For the most part. Yeah, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> I, I, that's crazy to me that, yeah, it's like, because you're, you're what, 14, 13? Right. Yeah, that's yeah. that's too late. You're already sure. listening to Slipknot. Already. <laughs> it's already over. You're already a loser. <laughs> right. You you exactly. bought you bought those big ass baggy pants already. The Jinkos. Right. It's 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 over for you, man. Basically, you know. Wow. Your identity forever. <laughs> Fago forever. Well, so, what's your biggest challenge been teaching? Uh, has it been with a student? Has it been with policy? What what's your your biggest challenge that you've seen in your career thus far? Oh, it's absolutely the the policy aspect. I mean, uh, I think very rarely, unless, unless the person was not cut out to be a teacher, will you have a teacher say, the hardest part of my day is the kid. If they say that, they have no business being a teacher. Right. And I'm sure there are plenty of teachers who say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that's one of the problems is that there are so many people in this profession for the wrong reasons. You yeah. know, summer's off or uh, whatever, you know. Um, but yeah, no, no, mine would definitely be the policy aspect. Um, I think, uh, like on a day-to-day basis, it's just the, um, you know, time management and the diversity of tasks that teachers have to accomplish. Like in any other, you know, business or organization, I think what teachers do would be divided up into multiple positions, multiple departments, uh, you know, that, that each had a more specialized function, but teachers do a little bit of everything. You know, and that makes kind of switching gears and just accomplishing all the tasks uh, very difficult. And that's been something that's kind of changed over the years or has that does that kind of stem back to the kind of um, the maternal aspect of looking at teachers where it's like you'll do whatever you have to do to take care of your student? Oh, absolutely. Is that yeah. too deep I mean, of a I, thought or no? No, no. no that's no, what Janelle I, brought I up think that's too, 100%. Yeah. What do you think, Chris? I, I No, I absolutely do. I think, uh, you know, w- when I was working in the charter school, which had a very um, corporate, you know, like startup, almost verging on like a culty kind of vibe to it, um, the, the, the refrain was always like, we're doing this for the kids, right? Like, you work, you don't have a union because we're doing this for the kids. Uh, you work way more than a teacher in a different school because we're doing this for the kids. So, yeah, it, it, it's, you know, I think it's a job that has had uh, the biggest expansion of responsibilities and stuff that you have to do. Uh, whereas, you know, the wages and the compensation, if anything, has declined or uh, at least remained stagnant. Uh, preparation and the, the change in curricula, the guidelines, you know, the initiatives that um, you're forced to start but then never asked to follow through on just pi- have piled up so vastly. Tell me about your thoughts on the differences between the American education system and the European education system. The biggest and I guess concrete difference between our system and uh, the, the European model, or as it's generally practiced in Europe and other parts of the developed world, would be that, you know, um, in America, like in another in a number of other public institutions, um, you know, us falling behind the rest of the world, I think, is a result of kind of a, a decades-long effort to sort of um, hollow out uh, and, you know, defund the public education system, um, which, you know, at one point in time was seen as kind of the pride of the world. It was a model of like, wow, you know, you could have a, uh, a civic education system in, in 
uh, immigrant cities that, you know, um, people use for tangible social mobility. And that's just no longer the case because they've been targeted and and sort of uh, brought down. So I think like uh, socially and, you know, then that translates into policy. There's a different um, stigma or, or I guess uh, connotation around public education. Um, you know, a lot of people in this country speak of it as though, you know, they're discussing something nasty on the bottom of their shoe, like Ugh, public schools, like a public school teacher, you know. Uh, yeah. And, and it's just not the same in, in other countries. Let me say this. One thing that Janelle said, which stuck with me, was the time she felt most heard was when she quit teaching and went into policy. Is there a way to kind of like give power back to the teachers or like how can we move back to where we were or a better place? Mm, I don't think so. I don't think we can uh, get back there. Um I really think that we education has become politicized on a number of fronts, right? It's a campaign issue for some politicians, uh, you know, where they pressure uh, school systems, you know, system-wide, you know, employees down to administrators that then trickles down to teachers. They pressured them to produce certain results. You know, I need to see a 5% increase in, in reading scores. Are the are the teachers, uh, you know, doing meaningful instruction to get that? No, absolutely not. They're teaching to a test. They're, you know, producing mechanical rehearse, uh, um, you know, responses from the students that we know don't, you know, uh, foster critical thinking. Uh, and, you know, and then it's politicized on another front where there's this ideological kind of uh, dimension to it. Right. Like, uh, you know, that you can just turn on the news and, and see a number of debates about, you know, what kids are being taught and, and what the, uh, the blatant and manifest functions of education are and what, you know, the indoctrination that's occurring, you know, so teachers are put under pressure uh, from outside uh, sources in that way too. Uh, so yeah, just based on the current trend of the way things are going, I do not see teachers becoming more empowered. If anything, it's going to continue um, sort of in this, <laughs> this downward spiral. And that sounds very cynical to say, especially from someone who wakes up every day. It does this. Well, no, no. <laughs> I mean, you know what? It's good to have, it's good to be aware and right. be realistic about it. Yeah. Right. Chris and, is the only meteorologist who's like, no, that, that comment's definitely hitting us. <laughs> right. Look up, Sorry. look up. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's obvious. Um, yeah. Are you interested in policy or do you see yourself becoming a professor or what direction do you want to go in your career? Well, I am interested in policy. Um, You know, I think like a lot of teachers, you uh, maybe your other guests, you know, had had this experience too. Eventually you, you grow tired of like, you know, doing the thing just because you're told to do it when you know that it's not doing the right. Exactly what she said. She also said something that I don't know if you were teetering on saying, but she she uh, talked about there's uh, touching the void. Have you ever seen that the documentary? No, I haven't, actually. Basically, this these people get stuck in this really deep crevice. And the only way out is to go deeper in without knowing where you're going to go. And if there is a way out, but that's the only way. And that so she made that kind of kind of um, hopeless kind of prediction or hopeless like, you know, predicament, predicament. And um, unless something crazy happens or we do something that is nuts that, you know, we have to put faith in or something, you know, that's never going to happen. It's not going to get any better. We need like an education Great Depression. 
We need like the new deal. Like when she said the new deal, you were like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we need like an education great depression where like everyone's like, oh, we ran out of education and like people are walking from town to town with like cups like for education. Right. Like, do you have any education? There are signs that say like, no education here. Keep walking. Right. right. Like we right. need that because right now I think education is undervalued because maybe this is going to sound like such a 19th century thing to say what I'm about to say. Maybe it's too easily available to everybody. Like, like that's how people used to think back in the day. Like, well, if it's, if everyone has it, they won't value it at all. Right. Right. I mean, and I almost feel like, like you hear all these people screaming about like, Oh, the education system. And like, yeah, a good amount of their children went to private school, but like a good amount of them didn't. Mm hmm. And their kids are like, whatever they are, you know, conservative, moderate, right? They're just like regular all old folks. The place, They're yeah. all over the folks. They went to these public schools too. It's so it's a lot of, it's a lot of the pot calling the kettle black. It's a lot of the. It's oh man, these things are ruining our institution. And now I'd like to introduce you to my daughter, who actually went to the high school down the street, um, <laughs> and she's going to tell you why fascism is good. <laughs> and it's like, well, how did we get that from? from the communist schools how did how did we get a fascist out of the communist schools it's it's an artificial problem that is being uplifted and said this is what education is well say you were uh made uh you were given the key tomorrow and uh you have all power you have two things that you can do that you can put in place for us here in america america to have um the best education that we can have and we'll go with these two things what would you put into place two things okay so i would say the first thing would be for education to remain public but reform itself to sort of emulate some of the practices of the private sector right because right now public education is held back by the fact that in many places it is this groaning uh you know massive bureaucracy right, that lacks the mobility to change in effective ways or at the rate that we need it to. And so people will point to that and say, well, the solution is to invite in all the private firms and, you know, turn this into uh, private high school. Like uh, people have joked, like, you know, high schools will one day be called like Taco Bell presents this high school. <laughs> Doritos Loco Taco Junior High. Yeah, 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 exactly. Doritos Locos Taco High School, you know, <laughs> uh, and I think that would be catastrophic. Right. I think that for a healthy functioning, you know, democracy, public education is essential. It needs to be under the purview of the people and not subject to, uh, you know, private interest. But there are things to be learned from the private sector, um, like incentives, right? Attracting the strongest, most competent candidates to teaching. Because let me tell you, I work with them. A lot of people I work with are not strong or competent. Right. And I think part of that is the lack of incentives that teachers have. Right. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough to live in New York where compared to the rest of the country, we're treated like royalty, uh, you know, in terms of the payment, the benefits, the uh, retirement options, uh, and just in general, the, the protections that we have from our union. Um, you know, but even in New York, with the cost of living being what it is, it's certainly something I think that keeps uh, you know the best candidates away from the profession. Yeah. Um, you know, also incentives in the form of you know career growth development. Um, you know, I, I think that 
doing the same thing, you know, being a classroom teacher from the age of like, you know, 22, where you're energetic and you're naive and you have like, you know, you're like a, a starry eyed idealist doing that every day and dealing with high school students for like 35 years, it's going to wear you down. Yeah. Like no one can do that. It, that's just an insane ask of anyone, you know? Uh, and I think more people would be drawn to the profession if you had those options of like, well, you know, maybe you start out as um, learning the fundamentals and really, you know, uh, developing your, your approach and your craft, like getting paid to do that, you know, then progressing to being able to lead a classroom once you're competent enough in your design and conception of education, you know, then maybe uh, moving on to where you're, you know, planning and developing content, whole department, and you really kind of having a bigger impact, you know, and then maybe ending your career with uh, in phase of it where you kind of serve as a coach and a mentor, you know, so that, you know, um, as you move through these different parts of life, you're not constantly asked to do something that, um, you know, you've always done and you have a chance to do something novel and, and more that's in brilliant. line with your skills at that age. That so is brilliant. I think that's, that's a big, big, big part of it. Uh, that's keeping competent people. That's awesome that you said that because my, my mother-in-law quit teaching because she was in her sixties expected to do stuff that people in their twenties were supposed to do. And she was, yeah. she was, um, treated z- like with zero difference. For sure. Absolutely. You know, and, and no other, job or career track that that happened to you, you know, in, in, in corporate America, even if you aren't, um, you know, more competent than younger people, you're given a senior role just because you've been there longer. Right. It doesn't mean you're better at it, you know, uh, mm. but, but it's just, it's, it's a natural progression and that, you know, it's a big, uh, factor of what keeps people, you know, retained in jobs and that just doesn't exist in teaching. So I think that's a big thing. Well, that's a good number one. Yeah. That's, 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 yeah, it went on a while, but that was, that was definitely one number one. That was like a, a breakthrough thought for me. I mean, that's so obvious that there is no incentive when you say it, but like, I never thought of that right. before. It's like, you're, 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 <laughs> you're teaching kids. Like what could be more fulfilling than that? Go feel fulfilled, <laughs> you know? Right. Wow. So you do it every day for, yeah, it, 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 it's taxing. And yeah, but you know, and then the, the other thing I think um, connects back to what we uh, discussed earlier would be, you know, um, kind of uh, shifting away from how we generate uh, or how we define success, right? We define success in education right now uh, very much on false or misleading metrics that I think don't really serve as an accurate representation of what we're, what we're supposed to be doing. Um, and we kind of justify these approaches with, you know, well-intended but unrealistic uh, ideas like, you know, what we discussed earlier, that anyone can accomplish anything. Uh, and I think we need to more thoughtfully uh, produce a system that gives kids, every kid, you know, not just the smart ones, but gives every kid a, chance to be successful in school, you know, to develop skills that they can actually use in their life and, you know, just, just develop a, uh, a sense of belonging, uh, to a larger society in the sense that they, you know, play a meaningful role in that society, regardless of what their, their individual skill set is. Because right now we're not, you know, quote unquote, pulling kids up by their bootstraps. We are convincing kids because of their failures that that's where you belong, you know, and it's almost as if in trying to do one thing, we're accomplishing the other. So I guess that would be my second would be uh, uh, tracking, but of course the thoughtful one, because I think it does have the potential to 
uh, you know, lead to further entrenching social division. We've been having this discussion and it's been so fantastic. And you used the word smart just now. And I know that it's sometimes difficult to choose and pick words in the midst of the, of, you know, of, of discussing, right? No, but yeah, I think it brings such a fantastic point that is a macro point for, you know, you, for Janelle, for all of our discussions, right? It's like part of this evolution process of education is almost disregarding our classical definition of smart, right? It's, it's actually about showing people where they're smart, mm-hmm. right? Where each person is smart, saying you are not a great English we can help you get better with speak with your English work, right? But you're really great with cars, right? Yeah. And you should be proud of yourself for being so great with cars. And we can help you get better with cars, right? Because you're not great at English doesn't mean you're stupid. Yeah. It means it means that you're as smart as the person who's great at English and can't fix cars. Yeah, exactly. As long as you can talk to people and be, uh, you know, productive society, you know, in society, that's good. But whatever you're passionate. Yeah. I mean, that's what I like about Montessori education so much is that they kind of the grades are different. Um, they look at what you're passionate about and they kind of try and feed that. Do you have any feeling on um, that, Chris? Absolutely. No, it's a, it's a great model. I think the one that kind of, uh, the Montessori model is one that, you know, speaks a little bit more to what we know about education. Um, and I think it's larger implementation or at least, you know, principles of it, um, is kind of blocked or inhibited by, um, you know, uh, certain forces within education that have a vested interest in it staying the way it does, you know, yeah. uh, a Montessori, a kid who goes to a Montessori skill is never going to take, you know, uh, uh, you know, SAT prep courses that are sold by Pearson. They're never going to buy, you know, review books that are sold by the college board or Pearson. That right? are super expensive. What a coincidence. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's a coincidence that these companies also produce the required standardized testing and preparation <laughs> that students have to buy, you know, and they have to take them. I think yeah, they used to so call I, that a racket back in the 1920s. <laughs> no. It's quite the racket, for sure. It's quite the racket. You know, it's like, you and it's funny because I think most teachers get into education because they're like, yeah, you know, I don't want to be like part of the machine, or like, <laughs> I don't want to just sell. So, and then you get into it and you learn it, and you're like, fuck. <laughs> like, all, right, all right, all right, Johnny's got to go out and buy his modest, his college AP prep, 1995 a month. <laughs> yeah, Montessori education is very cool, um, but yeah, that that's that's why we'll very unlikely see it. You know. Uh, brought about on the national stage in any meaningful way. I remember when I heard about it because my niece was going to it and I was like, there are no grades? <laughs> what do you mean? You know what I mean? It's crazy, yeah. but it's like, yeah, I, I, I guess both you and Janelle have brought up, both both people we've talked to have brought up like radical change, complete change. Yeah. And uh, why is college education so expensive, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> Can you answer that I in five think, minutes, Chris? Uh, yeah, I'll try to. Uh, I think because college uh, or the, the college education system in this country uh, has not evolved to meet the, the, the function that it serves, right? It used to be, right, right, like American meritocracy used to be very different. Yeah. Right? Uh, and it, it, was, it was very 
It was accessible to a select number of people, usually men from elite, wealthy coastal cities and families, right? And a college degree meant something. But as you know, meritocracy kind of changed what you had to have to, for certain job qualifications. It lost its, you know, uh, clout, you know, in terms of what what it can actually do for you professionally, and uh, didn't change in terms of its price point at all. Um, and, and and I think they realized that, and were just it developed into this behemoth business of yeah. uh, again, it's a, it's a racket, you know, um, it's what it is. It started out as this um, element of meritocracy that doesn't really work anymore you know uh, with the social cha- the social mobility that you were able to achieve um, if you got a college degree and your parents had not years ago was pretty significant now you know even if your parents did not receive a college degree and you do receive one there's not going to be a tremendous amount of difference in terms of your earning power or generational wealth position uh, like it used to be um, so I, I think I think it's that it's the change in the meritocracy and the fact that like education at large is just developing into a larger you know, business with more uh, more people involved it's been awesome talking to you you're the best Chris find the noblest motive on your favorite podcasting platforms for topic ideas and questions email podcast at wmay.com the noblest motive is a production of Midwest family Springfield.